Imagine what we could learn if we could talk to a beluga. Today I'm talking to Doug Allen. Doug is an award-winning natural history photographer, documentary filmmaker, diver, author, and public speaker. Doug's photographic awards include eight Emmys, five BAFTAs, and five Wild Screen Pandas. In his 35 years of filming, he's been involved with more than 65 films, freelancing for the BBC, Discovery, National Geographic, and others. He was principal cameraman on many prestigious award-winning programmes, making over 25 trips to the Antarctic and more than 30 across the Arctic, filming for series including Frozen Planet, Ocean Giants, Human Planet, Planet Earth, The Blue Planet and Life in the Freezer. Although Doug has filmed worldwide, he is a specialist at filming underwater frozen worlds and has a deep love for the polar regions. Doug is uniquely positioned to give us his take on climate change and also entertain us with stories about encounters with polar bears, speaking to a beluga whale and getting a hug from a walrus. Doug is touring Ireland with his beautiful imagery and wonderful stories on his It's a Wrap tour. So check out the show notes for details, a perfect treat for any nature lover. I'm delighted to be speaking to Doug Allen today, who is a wonderful wildlife photographer. Where are you speaking from today, Doug? I'm speaking to you from where I live, which is in Bristol. But funnily enough, you know, I do have a little cottage um, not far from you. Just I've got a little cottage in Connemara, which I'm coming out to at the end of this month um, over near Letterfrack. You know, so it's right out on the west coast and it's absolutely, it's a beautiful spot. Looking forward to You've got a tour coming up. It's a rap tour, which is travelling through Ireland. And it is in Galway in the town hall on the 9th of November, I believe. Yep. Yeah, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing quite a few gigs in Ireland. I'm doing, I think, um, something like 14 theatres. But I'm also doing a couple of schools as well, um, uh, up in Northern Ireland, actually. And I'll be, yeah, it's a wrap. I do a theatre too, roughly every year, although it was interrupted by COVID, obviously. But it's a good chance to go out on the road and talk about my experiences filming wildlife and talking about the issues of climate change round about them, but behind the scenes stories, so to speak. You know those 10 minutes that they bring up at the end of all the big episodes on the big wildlife series, those 10 minutes that go behind the scenes. Well, imagine an extended version of that where I talk about the various shoots that I've been on over the, sometimes over the 30 odd years that I've been filming around the world. So it's, uh, so I really enjoy it. It's a great chance to go out and meet the public. And I love to see the range of people that I get, you know, from five-year-olds to, well, however old people want to come along. All ages. <laughs> exactly. And it's great to have somebody inspirational. You've filmed for Blue Planet and all those frozen places. So I think when you were young, you were inspired by Jacques Cousteau. Maybe we're around the same age as I remember those programs <laughs> and they really were the only thing at the time on TV that was really wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, people have so much choice nowadays. But back in those days, as you stated, nature slots that were shown, even the Jacques Cousteau programme, I think, went out um, on the BBC as part of, of another series. They did absolutely inspire me. In fact, before even his television series, he wrote a wonderful book called The Silent World, which was published in 1957. And I remember this uh, book appearing as a condensed book in the Reader's Digest um, condensed book series. And my father used to buy those. And I probably read uh, The Silent World when I was about nine or 10 years old. And it really, it just fired up my imagination. It was such a good time, interesting time to be at that sort of formative years in your life, because we were doing things underwater which haven't been duplicated until recently. I mean, the, the, you know, people went to the deepest part of the ocean in 1960, and we didn't go back there until five years, five years ago, when or so when James Cameron went down in his submersible. But at the same time, we were reaching out into space. There was all the man in space program, man into the moon. I mean, all that happened through the 60s. So it was a wonderful decade for, 
you know, for, for analog exploration, but also for seeing the world, seeing the big picture of the world. Biology as a science moved away from looking at how individual animals worked. Uh, it began to look at whole ecos how whole ecosystems worked, how the ocean worked, how the forests worked, how the energy flowed through that system. And it was because of that, I think, and because of the, the man leaving the earth, human beings leaving the earth, I think we had a, an interest in whole the status of the whole earth and how it worked. And basically, environmentalism grew up through the late 60s and through the 70s. And um, it, it really did reach a peak and it, it was enormously effective, you know, in that in that 10 year period. Um, the shame is that we lost it then for quite a few decades, but now we're starting to, to pick it up again. We're starting to realise the importance of natural systems and how much we should be looking after them. Yeah, I mean, before we started to, pre well, before I pressed record, um, you were talking about walk driving past a reservoir that has dropped so oh. much that you reckoned they had lost how many tonnes of water in the last couple of months? Well, there's a reservoir that I drive past regularly, and um, obviously it's an artificial lake, effectively, and it has a dam down one side. And I could look and see where the normal normal level of water is in the reservoir, and I could see that the normal level had dropped by about two and a half metres. And so I googled the surface area of the reservoir, and from that I was able to work out how many cubic metres of water had been lost. And a cubic metre of water weighs one tonne. And I reckon it had lost getting on for 15 million tonnes of water in the drought that we've had over here in the last month or so. So, you know, the, when you imagine that happening across several of the big reservoirs, um, you know, in England and the southern south of England, especially, um, it's no wonder that the farmers uh, and the public at, at large are being uh, are getting concerned about the lack of water. Um, and that's coming on top of, of these record temperatures that we had last month where UK, England managed to record over 40 degrees centigrade for the first time. So I think it could be shaping up to be a very warm, dry, record-breaking um, summer. Uh, and it's just, you know, it, it makes you... You know, also, I was talking to friends who just come back from holiday in the Mediterranean, and for them, it was almost too warm. I mean, Ireland will may never have those problems on the West Coast. I think you've got this wonderful oceanic climate where rain is never far away, although you, you can have very good spells of weather too. But generally, you know, the weather is, is changing around the world. We can see the weather changing over here too. Your specialism is diving um, and especially in those icy places in the world. And um, if you just look up some of Dodd's work, it's really absolutely beautiful. And I was watching one of your little clips on the website today and you just threw away this comment, which I'd like to ask you about. And you said, are these animals trying to talk to us? What did you mean by that? Well, this all came from, um, we did a series which has recently been uh, replayed on, on BBC Two called Ocean Giants, and that was all about um, finding out about whales. And we spoke to some fascinating whale biologists. Um, among them were people who were studying the sounds that dolphins and bigger whales make. And we're only just beginning to understand what these sounds could be used for. And there's certainly one scientist, Denise Herzing, who works a lot with um, spotted dolphins off the Bahamas. And she is convinced that their level of communication between them is not, it's not just functional. Um, it's not just making sounds to find schools of fish under the sea or stuff like that. It's actually, you know, high level communication between them. And I was diving in the presence of belugas up in the Arctic. Now, belugas are white dolphins, which you only find in the Arctic. And they're extremely vocal. When you get close, when there's a pod of beluga come close to you, you can hear them long before you can see them. 
they are they used to be called sea canaries by the whalers who went up there because the whalers in their wooden boats when they were down below decks they could hear the noises that the whales were making because the sound would just pass from the water through the wooden hulls and you could hear it inside the boat and um they didn't know what was causing these sounds i think eventually probably put two and two together with the belugas but anyway they gave belugas the name sea canaries because when you're with them, it really is like being in the middle of a flock of birds. They're chirping and whistling and making all sorts of noises, just like birds would make. And um, I had I was in the company of this single beluga at one point, and and this guy was making the noises that I could hear because I knew there were many other ones around. And this beluga came and he, he, they're very curious. And actually the way to get close to them in the water is you don't have to dive with them. You just lie on the surface and you make noises. You, you hum down your snorkel and you make a noise into the water. And they, I think, hear that noise and they come over out of curiosity to see who or what is making this noise. So I'm lying in the water and the beluga is within two meters of me and he's looking at me and he's making all these noises. And at one point, they have this big domed forehead called a melon on their head. It's a big structure. And in that melon, that's where they make a lot of the noises. Because when they make these noises, you don't see air coming out of their blowhole or their mouth like we are. They make uh, the sounds by squeezing air through very narrow channels within the melon and, and these channels have valves in them. And by restricting the channels and, and squeezing the valves in different directions, they can make the different frequencies. So I'm looking at this whale and suddenly across the melon, there was, the melon changes shape. It can become more prominent or more flattened depending on what noises they're making. And I was looking at this blue and suddenly there were two or three very distinct creases developed laterally across the melon. And I looked at this and I thought, you know, they're exactly the same sort of creases that I would have on my forehead if I was talking to someone who wasn't understanding what I was saying. You know, you you would crease your forehead and say, why don't you understand what I'm saying? And I thought, I wonder if beluga is making the sounds that we use to communicate with other belugas, but he's getting no response from me and he's just getting frustrated. Why can't you understand what I'm trying to tell you? And, you know, I know that, that as I say, belugas make extremely complex ranges of sounds and, and scientists are busy with some big project money trying to decipher the language that dolphins, um, that whales use to speak to each other. And it also led me on to thinking that here we go spending billions, billions of dollars going to Mars, for example, and dropping the latest in technology, wonderful technology, and um, vehicles that can trundle around on Mars, looking, sending back fantastic pictures, looking for the smallest sign of evidence of life. And the ultimate with any of these extraterrestrial explorations is to find some form of alien life on another planet. And we've got this alien species on our own planet that's clearly highly intelligent, clearly lives in a world that we are just poking the surface at, you know, the deep sea, the ocean. And um, imagine what we could learn if we could talk to a beluga and understand what it was saying. Imagine what we would, you know, what we could learn from it. And interestingly, marine mammals in, in some cases are now being used to collect oceanographic data. You know, seals which come ashore at regular um, haul-out spots, scientists have attached uh, instrument packages to them while they're ashore, and then they let the animal go out. And then when the animal comes back or while it's out there doing its behaviour, they all the data from its dive um, is transmitted when it's at the surface, um, you know, breathing, recovering from one dive. All the data from the previous dive is sent up to a satellite and the scientist can download it and he can get what's called the dive profile. Not just the depth that it goes to, but with current scientific um, satellite tags, 
you can build up a three-dimensional picture of what the animal is doing underwater, how shallow, you know, what's the angle of his dive, whether it's turning left or right, and, and you can get all this data and build up this three-dimensional graph of what the animal's been doing and what it may be doing with other animals that it's diving with. And this is opening up all kinds of new information about the world underneath the water. Yeah, how wonderful. It's a bit like um, sort of trying to translate hieroglyphics or something. Hopefully, if you get one or two little clues that, that match and then you'll go, oh, my goodness, you know. This. No, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and um, you know, now with computer, able to, to feed in dolphin sounds into a computer um, with the suitable algorithms on it, you can do an enormous number of calculations looking for it. And also we've got you know, human being, human, other scientists have worked on different languages around the world and, and been discovering the common roots of you know, how languages are connected and therefore we can look for this kind of connection possibly in those sounds. I mean, it all sounds really science fiction -y, but um, I think you know, 10 years is a long time in science and, and, and these scientists are working with that sort of time frame in mind. And um, when you think what we didn't know 10 or 15 years ago compared to what we know now, then it could be that we'll make the breakthrough within the next few years. It'd be, it'd be great to, to be there. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? And technology is moving so fast. Um, I know you've got wonderful stories. I mean, I suppose the one that um, maybe if you could quickly tell the listeners when you were cuddled by a walrus. Oh, I wouldn't say cuddled. <laughs> well, that was another one where I was, I was snorkeling. Uh, just on a snorkel, no scuba, um, off the ice, off the edge of the ice in the Arctic. And I was actually out trying to catch some pictures of guillemots, which were diving. Um, these are Arctic guillemots, and they were paddling around, and then occasionally they would synchronously dive down into the depths and then come back up. And uh, so I was looking for shots just as they left the surface. So I got a few pictures, and then um, I was just trailing water. I was not relying on top of the water, but I was just treading water so I could put my head up and look around looking for another group uh, that I could paddle over and maybe get a picture of. And when I was treading water like that, suddenly something grabbed me around the thighs. It was just like someone had come up from underneath and wrapped their arms around my thighs. And I looked down and there was a head of a walrus literally almost underneath one armpit. And, and uh, my reaction was to, was to swing the camera around and kind of push hard on the walrus's head and that the walrus let me go and it swam away a couple of meters and then turned around and headed away and by that time I was heading back to the to the edge of the ice and what the walrus had effectively done was confuse me for a seal most of the time walruses feed on clams, you know, mussels in the muddy bottoms but occasionally it may be the ice on the top of the water um, prevents them accessing the, the shallow areas that they want to get. So they'll paddle off into, into deeper water and they'll look for seals um, that they can attack. And the easiest seal to attack is one which is sleeping on the surface. And when a seal goes to sleep, they go vertical in the water. You'll see them off seal colonies off the Irish coast. You know, if you see a little head sticking up with its nose in the air, that's probably a seal sleeping. They just sleep like bottles bobbing up and down. And my, the, the walrus must have been probably patrolling around on the surface looking for a little head bobbing up and it saw mine. And then they dive down a fair distance away, they dive down underneath. And when they think or when they know they're underneath the seal, they look up and of course they can see the seal silhouette against the bright water above. And then up they come, grab the seal and take it down. Um, but normally they would take the seal quite high. This one walrus took me around the thighs, and because I had my hands up close to the water surface, uh, luckily my hands weren't by my side because I had grabbed, you know, if I pinned my arms to my side, it would have been a real problem. Um, as it is, if they pin the seal's flippers to its side, which prevents the seal swimming away, then quite often they kill the seal by, they will bend over, the walrus will put its lips against the head of the seal and basically they suck the seal's brains out, um, which is... <laughs> it's a terrible it's death. You it's feel pretty quickly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky that it took me lower and maybe it recognised the brainless Scotsman when it 
smelt one or saw one. But um, I think the main reason it didn't press home is, you know, it didn't carry on, although it, it might, all it needed to do was hold on tight and take me down, and that would have been it. But I think the fact that I reacted in an unseal-like manner by hitting it on the head with a camera, that meant it. Let me go and that was it. It's still the one that gives me, you know, lets me think, because as I say, if it had held on and, and just taken me down half a metre, only on snorkel, completely unexpected, then it would have been, could have been a very different story. Yeah, it would have been curtains. Um, it's a funny-ish story now, but <laughs> definitely not no, funny, it, funny at the time. <laughs> No, I mean, it certainly, you know, it was only when I was back on the ice edge that, you know, my heart started going. And um, it was when I was talking to my Inuit friends later, they told me about this refined technique that the Walrus had for finishing off the seal. That was when I thought, ooh. Oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely. So you have so many lovely stories, but I'd really love to hear about your favourite animal, if it is the narwhal. Narwhal is certainly one of them. I mean, they're, they're very charismatic. You've got here a small whale, a small toothed whale, um, which lives only in the Arctic. Not quite circumarctic. It's more common in the Canadian Arctic. And its main distinguishing feature is that the males, although there are some females, but the males carry a tusk. They have a a tusk, which is a modified tooth, grows out of their upper upper jaw, and it grows through their upper jaw. And in a, a, a big male narwhal might be five and a half meters long, and it could have a three meter long tusk sticking out the front of it. And this tusk is made of ivory, just like elephant tusks is derived from a tooth. And they have this lovely spiral to them. They're, they're, they've got fine ridges running along them, but the whole tusk kind of has a, a, a gentle spiral that aims towards the point. And to be honest, we don't, we, we suspect that this is like a secondary sexual characteristic. It's like deers on a, on, antlers on a deer, for example. Because when you think about it, if it was something that was really important for feeding, for example, then the females would have it as well. But when you get something which is pretty much exclusively just the males have it, then it's almost a safe bet that sex has got something to do with it. And there have been observations of narwhals coming together at the surface. Males and females tend to keep to their respective groups. There have been um, times when groups of male narwhals have been seen, you know, lifting their tusks in the air and slowly moving them around and crossing tusks very gently with other narwhals. And I've seen one narwhal, a male narwhal, kind of lay its tusk across the back of another male and tap it a couple of times, quite gently. But um, it may be that the, the male narwhals, simply by having a long tusk and by showing it to the others in the group, that 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 might give them some kind of um, breeding priority mm. over it. Because it could be that that groups of males get together, like a lot of whales, that groups of whales gather, groups of males gather around one female and basically harass it, but then have, um, have sex multiple times with it. And it could be that the bigger narwhals, by having the bigger tusk, simply get more chances and have more, more chance of of reproductive success. But as I say, they're quite, I mean, they're very charismatic. They're not easy to get close to. The, the conditions in the Arctic with good visibility where you can get with them underwater, that window of opportunity is quite narrow because <clears throat> as the ice breaks up and the, the open water becomes accessible with the narwhals, then also that's the time when the sunlight, 24-hour sunlight, the amount of sunlight coming down on the water is at a peak. So you've only got about a couple of weeks when the ice starts to open up and the water's clear. And then after two to three weeks, the plankton just blooms and it becomes like pea soup and you can't, you can hardly see your subjects. So you've got that quite narrow window to look after them and uh, to look for them. But, um, you know, as with all mammals, all animals, perhaps, you know, there's a range of personalities, a range of weariness that, that mammals have. And 
And some mammals, some whales, do just by their nature end up more curious, more friendly than others. Um, but it would be nice to think that somewhere up there there's a, a friendly male narwhal that would give me you know, 10 minutes in its company with a camera in my hand. I was I was befriended by a by a female um, on a on a shoot in one of my early days. Um, I got in the water with a bunch of females, and this one just absolutely locked onto me. And I could snorkel down, you know, five or six meters down, and she would be literally right by my side, and she'd stick with me, and we'd come back up to the surface, and you know, she would just be there with her with her pup, oh. with her calf rather. And the same thing happens. I've experienced that with seals and humpback whales and you know other mammals in the water. And that that's what's great about underwater, isn't it? Because underwater, you're kind of forced into a proximity to your subjects that you don't have on land. On land, we can see our animals from a long way away. We can take care, we can take precautions so that we're not seen. We can film from a blind, this kind of thing. But you can't do that underwater. You know, the animal, when the animal can see, when you can see the animal, the animal can see you. And often it can sense you from much further away before you even see it. Um, and then, of course, it's no use filming an animal, which is at the limit of visibility. You have to get closer to it. So underwater needs a whole different um, techniques to get close. And part of that is, is feeling at home in the water and, and just you know giving off the right vibes. I mean, I do firmly believe topside and underwater, but... How you behave, what is going through your mind is crucially important. If you go for a walk across the burn um, and you want to see the wildlife, then be persistent, walk slowly and almost walk as if it didn't matter if you saw something or not. You know, I was once told by an old friend who was a, a poacher, actually, in Scotland, and he used to, um, he used to say he said, I could walk through a field full of rabbits or sheep or cows. And if I don't watch them, they're not bothered. But the minute you make eye contact with them, they're off, you know. And so you can do the same underwater. You can do the same walking in a wild space. You can be a very, you can be kind of alert and, and looking around and feeling around. But if you let your gaze go past the animal that you might want to see and then gently come back to it and move it around, then actually the animal will quite often stay where it is or it will certainly react in a very different way to if you suddenly stop and bring all your attention to it. So I like yeah. underwater because I think underwater in particular, you really have to be at one with the environment and at one with the animals that you want to, to approach. That will give you by far your best chance to get something. But the same goes for topside, you know, whether it's with polar bears or, or any other Arctic animals. Yeah, I think the vibe, well, your energy, you know, the animals read body language and energy and everything so oh, much yeah, yeah, more yeah. than us that we don't understand. And you can see, I've learned a lot from, even though I've worked with horses my whole life, but the last couple of years, I've learned so much more from one particular horse about energy and yeah, yeah, communication. Right. Yeah. yeah, but you can do the so, same with people, can't you? You get a bunch of people, some people, they just put you a bit on edge because they're all, you know, they're all just that way they don't make you relax whereas other people they, they do it I, I don't know it's a bit of a gift that some people have to extend yeah i think everybody can right. get it though i think i think it's practice as well and i think it's about um just isn't it what people say being present and not having this constant shopping list in your head because the animals looking at you thinking oh she's got a big shopping list in her head or whatever and she's actually not not here kind of thing but I'm sure under, underwater the vibrations you know everything your communication yeah, yeah, everything right. is so instant yeah, yeah. Uh, and remember that things like dolphins can buzz you from afar with their sonar and, and yeah. make all kinds of assessments about your muscle tone, about how much activity is going on in your head, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and if it's the right activity, then they're liable to come in. If it's the wrong one, they will go. But this is all partly about, about familiarity, isn't it, you know, with nature and, and re and connection with nature and feeling that you're somewhere different and somewhere special and somewhere where you belong. And, and I think that that is one of the key things that people 
should be encouraged, especially youngsters, and, and many of them are getting it now. And maybe COVID was quite useful because it gave people that chance to go out into, into nature. But I think we need to capitalise on that and encourage it and make it as possible and encourage it at all sorts of levels in the schools and with outings, what people do at weekends. It's about encouraging and making wildness accessible to people and encouraging them to go out and, 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 and enjoy it in all kinds of different ways. But one of the ways is just to go and quietly enjoy it. And that's why the wild spaces in Ireland are, are particularly important, whether it's Connemara or the Burn or you know anywhere um, where you can get back into the rawest nature that you can. And not just on the good days, but on the wild days wild days when, you, when you're getting blown off the cliffs and all that sort of stuff you know that that's when nature comes alive too is isn't it and um, maybe you could tell us about your most dramatic day in the ice or perhaps that an animal <laughs> that you met that's a different question or perhaps an encounter i'm not sure what's whichever you like well you know as i say my my favorite topside animal is probably you know polar bear and I'll, I always remember the first time I properly saw one um, because they're not, there are some places you can go and be guaranteed, you know, to see a polar bear. Um, but the first time I went, I was looking for them up in the Canadian Arctic and I was out with an Inuit, uh, an Inuit guide and we'd been snow machining around for three or four days and really hadn't, hadn't seen any bears at all. This was in, in March. I hadn't seen any bears at all, um, which is not uncommon, as I later came to realise. Um, but then we'd, we'd stopped for the, the last brew of the day, the last cup of tea. We stopped and the guy got his stove out and cranked it up and put some ice lumps in the kettle and was just bringing the kettle to the boil to have the last cup of tea. And it was quite late in the day. The sun was quite low on the horizon and we were just standing there looking around and about maybe 150 yards away this polar bear came out from behind a lump of ice and it was it would I was cold it had been minus 30 35 all day driving around looking for these things not seeing very much and and the first impression I had when the bear came out was just how this animal belonged there and how confident it felt and it was quite a big male and the sun was almost behind it and you could see the breath coming out of its, out of its mouth you know backlit and when I put the binoculars on it you could see the this light frost on the hairs on its back you know just with the sunlight coming through them but as I say this overall impression that I had of of this animal just belonging there here we were having a brew looking forward to getting back to the tent me cold and aware of the fact that you know over the three days I don't think we'd seen a living thing there had been no birds we hadn't seen any seals all the seals were in the water and here was this big fat polar bear that obviously was making a living no problem at all in this environment and it glanced across at us and then it looked back and then it just turned and ambled off in the sunset and as I say you couldn't hope for a better first view of a Magic. polar bear and I realised at that point why it is quite justifiably, you know, why why it's the first polar animal that comes to most people's mind. It's either a polar bear or a penguin. I've spent time with them both, and they're both memorable, but for very different reasons. And since then, uh, luckily, you know, all my times with polar bears, all the days that I've spent with them, have just underscored that first impression that I had about their about their power, about their intelligence, about their survivability, and about their cleverness, and, and just how much they need to know to make a living in, you know, in such a harsh environment, in such a changeable environment. You know, I don't know anywhere else where in, in March you, you're driving around over something that feels totally solid, and by August you'll need a boat to get back there. You know, yeah. it's just changed. It's a bit like, well, maybe the Brazilian Pantanal, for example, which, you know, the flooded forest where you could walk around in the dry season and in the wet season, everything's under a couple of metres of water. But the Arctic somehow just, you know, it's that 
specialness. It's the emptiness of it. It's the hugeness of the skies. Uh, and it's the, it is quite a hostile place for people, for human beings to live. Um, it's exciting. Have you any advice for a budding wildlife photographer that might be listening to the show? There are, there's a big difference between, between shooting wildlife stills and trying to make wildlife movies. They demand you put a different hat on your head. For the stills, you're looking for a series of images that, you know, are instant, you know, sum everything up. With making movies, it's about telling stories and it's about learning the grammar of filmmaking. Um, you can teach yourself with either of them. In fact, it's it's never been easier in a way with uh, with digital technology. When I started, it was the days of film, and I started in film in the Antarctic. Now, some films we could develop ourselves in the Antarctic. Other films, if you shot a film in April, a roll of stills film in April, um, it would be November and the next ship call after winter, of course, you could send it out. It would have to go back to UK. It might not make it back by the end of that summer. It might be the end of the summer after. Basically, you might be waiting <laughs> up to two years before you actually saw your pictures. Whereas now, digital, really, you know, you you can go out, you can take it, um, and you can think that's not quite right, I can do better. So really it's about, in both cases, it's about um, taking the time to learn um, what controls you have on your camera, which can make the difference between a good shot and a mediocre shot. And that sometimes can come down to what settings you put on the camera. Sometimes it comes down to the composition. It's amazing how, you know, just a simple rule, like if you're filming, if you're, you get a photograph of an animal, usually get level with their eyes. So you want a nice shot of your pet dog, get down on one knee, lie on it if it's a small dog, get level with its eyes. That just immediately improves the picture. Um, and the same goes with, with kids. You know, get down to their eye level, you get a much better picture. So it's partly composition, it's partly that. There are heaps of information out there on the internet. Um, with with the thing with with movie making or, or making a living as a camera person is that again it's quite different. <clears throat> there are there are lots of wildlife productions being made, and the normal way it works is that if when you are in demand, the production company will come to you. They will say, "I want you to film so and so. Uh, I want you to go to this place for two three weeks, and we'll pay you so much a day while you try to get it." Um, they take all the risk. You go there, do the very best you can. If you come back with nothing, you'll still get paid. But if you come back with the most wonderful footage, they will own it all in perpetuity. So in other words, you've been paid while you make it, but that's the end of your commercial interest. With stills, it's much more common for, you won't get paid so much while you make it, or while you try to get the pictures, but you will own the pictures. So therefore you, those pictures, if they're good, they could be very valuable for years and years and years. So you build up a library of your own. But then nowadays you can back it up with um, talks that you give like I do. And I couldn't give the, the presentations that I do unless I had all these stills I had accumulated over the years behind the scenes. Some of the animals themselves, you know, but I can mix the two. So my advice to, to anyone, if you're a stills photographer, then... Take the best stills that you can, look to improve your technique, look around at good magazines that have good wildlife pictures in them and still the obvious ones are National Geographic, things like that, BBC Wildlife, BBC wildlife. there are others. Um, try to, you know, look at a picture that you like and ask yourself why you like it. Is it because of the composition or is it the depth of field, the way that the subject stands out from the rest of the background? Learn how you can apply those techniques to yourself. Think about think about when you take pictures, often it's interesting if you think about, instead of just going for one picture of an animal doing something, imagine that you'd been given an assignment by a magazine article to, to do a, a bigger 
piece about this animal. So you want different shot sizes. You might want shots of the environment where that animal lives. You know, you might want shots of some scientific work that might be going on with it. You can access people ringing it or something like that. So think about making, you know, a story um, and also maybe think about writing yourself round about that story, because writing a story means you can write that story specific to your photograph so you can you know give it more chance of being published which you know in a magazine and things so you'll get some money back from it but it also just increases your your awareness of the potential of photography so i would say study magazines which do photo stories rather than just individual pictures think about putting your pictures with a library there are several libraries, Nature PL is one here in Bristol. And basically a library, if your pictures are good enough, they will take your pictures, they will sell them on your behalf. Now that doesn't mean that you lose copyright, your pictures are still yours, but that um, picture library will sell them, will negotiate a fee, will deal with all the rights um, which are being sold. And then um, every quarter they will send you a cheque or the sales that they have made or a percentage of the sales that they have made. And if you get a good relationship with a, a library and get to the stage where you have several hundred photographs with them, then that could well bring you an income of, you know, a thousand or a couple of thousand pounds every quarter. And this all adds up because as a freelance, which you almost inevitably will be, your income will need to come from several different sources, so to speak. Um, if you want to get into movie business, then um, there's a lot of tech tech stuff these days to go with the cameras. But again, you can teach yourself how to how to how to make a movie by studying studying uh, movies that are made. Take take a program, take one episode from a big wildlife program, and choose one particular sequence that you like, and then break that sequence down. Get yourself a shorthand that allows you to. Watch it until the picture changes and then, and then write a quick description. And then at that point, if you combine that with reading on how to make films, you'll then realise how important big close-ups are when you're following an animal, let it walk out of the shot. You'll learn to be an editor. And learning, actually, the person that you film for, when you're out in the field filming, you're filming for the editor. You are creating the building blocks which that editor will use to craft together to make something that looks seamless. And your job is to give him as many stylish, technically spot-on building blocks as he or she needs. Um, and for them to arrive at the time when they do the cutting and not be limited by, God, I wish we had more shots of this or more shots of that. And that will depend on, on you being enough of an editor in your head in the field to know that you might get 90% of the shots that you need in 10% of the time that you've got. But those 10% of the really crucial shots that will make the sequence sing, you know, those are the ones you're gonna to have to work with. And they might be close-ups, they might be slow motions, it might be something like that. So if you, can, if you can learn all that and then apply it when you shoot and again, what you want to try to do is get a showreel. So in other words, get a finished piece of film, not just a random collection of pretty shots, but a genuine, you know, a sequence of behavior. It can be something fairly simple, a bird flying in, feeding its chicks, taking off, feeding itself. If you can get a nice, you can shoot a nice snappy thing like that, put that in your showreel, then people will look at it. Producers who will then give you a job as a camera person, they will look at them and think, this person knows how to shoot you know they're steady and not waving all over the place he's not just giving me a random collection of pretties anyone can shoot that it's about thinking like a camera person and, and i think that applies you know with both um every year i see new people getting into the business so there are openings but again be prepared to to write to people there's a big wildlife film festival that happens every two years in bristol called wild screen which is happening this year it's a good place to go and put names on faces be prepared to, to not just send your material to producers but you know try to meet them face to face briefly and um, because you're 
you know, look around for jobs as assistants, you know, because these days wildlife camera people use assistants. Um, and that, again, you know, technical knowledge of the equipment, but also technical knowledge of how to download the, the, the cards mm. that the camera records and all this sort of stuff. You know, being an assistant can be a valuable route into the thing. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. there's, there's lots of info on the internet suggesting how you get into that. Don't just go to one reference, read many of them, and then you'll find that they're the salient points. You know, mm, that's invaluable you. advice. Thank you very much, Doug. That really is. Well, that one good thing, you know, now that it's come out of COVID is that, that there is increasingly seen as value in having a camera person, a movie camera person, based in the place that you want to do the filming. Because it's very expensive and not the greenest of things to fly your camera people from the UK somewhere where there's a perfectly good camera person there. And COVID, with the lack of you know difficulty of mm. travelling, that has meant that these foreign-based camera people have got more of a crack of the whip now than they used to have pre-COVID. And That's I very interesting. Moving forward into the things. So if you're based in Ireland, it's an advantage can be an advantage if you're based if you're listening to this podcast somewhere else then it can be an advantage to be based in that country mm, that's invaluable advice for wildlife photographers or, or aspiring filmmakers um I, I don't want to take your whole day but have you any message for the people listening as to how humans can help nature or what would you like to see that we can actually do that's quite frustrating sometimes yeah, it is frustrating. Um, I think that we, we need to... You've got an awful lot of power in your finger, which, which decides where to put that cross in the next voting box, whether that's at a local election or a general election or whatever. Just go green. Vote. Give these green people a chance. You know, at the moment, they're a small party. If we had proportional representation and not a first-past-the-post system, we would have far more green people on the edges of government and possibly in government than we do. One of the most exciting things in Scotland, uh, where I hail from, is that the SNP, Scottish Nationalist Party, are now, now have a, a formal agreement, a coalition with the Greens in Scotland to make the biggest party. And I think a combination of SNP and Green is really going to drive that country in the right direction. So don't forget what you can do at that level, but just do the obvious things, you know, move to a green electricity supplier, you know, rather than a fossil fuel burner. And um, if you can afford that, go for an electric car, change all your light bulbs, do all these things. But also look around for organisations at a local level that are doing good green things, whether they're cleaning up a river or planting some trees, stuff like that. These sort of organisations are dotted all over the place in every country. And find out the ones, find out the one who is doing something that you, it doesn't have to be maybe the most effective one in some respects, because some are, some are more effective, but it has to be something that you want to do. If you want to get your hands dirty, then there's nothing better than clearing rubbish out of a river, out of a burn, you know, or something like that. Um, but get involved with, with the local things and be aware of, of where you can where you can save energy. You know, do you have to buy so many new things? Lots of stuff you could buy perfectly good secondhand. And all the energy has gone into making those things. So when you buy them secondhand, that energy isn't used anymore. You know, it's not needed, but at the same time, you're extending the life of that thing. Mm, so I think, um, you know, buying secondhand would, would not only save you money, but you could get a perfectly good um, what you wanted, but it's a much greener way of doing it. Yeah, exactly. And go on to sort of the done deal or something if you're looking for a new juicer and you'll find that people want to get rid of their juices and just go for that one. So I think that's a very good way of putting it, very simply um, push that you're saving the energy of making the new item. Um, yeah. Doug, it's been amazing listening to all your stories and you can hear more from Doug in the It's a Wrap tour that's touring around Ireland. You've been very kind, thank you. I mean, I always like talking to people. I'm looking forward a great deal to the Irish tour. Um, I'm talking at the Clifton Arts Festival on the 15th of September, and then my Irish tour starts on the 1st of, 1st of November. 
and runs through until the 22nd. If you go to my website, which is dougallen.com, and that's D-O-U-G, and the Allen is A-L-L-A-N, Alpha Lima Lima Alpha November, dougallen.com, then um, there's uh, a little promo reel followed by um, links onto where you can get tickets to all the theatres that you want to go to. And I, like I say, I love, I love touring and I, I like touring in Ireland because people like to talk in Ireland, you know, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's just great fun. And I love, I love the venues that we've got lined up. I was last, I think I last did an Irish tour in 2016, I think, and we had some great audiences and this is all, New stories, you know, new clips, new funnies, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really looking forward to it. But I also want to thank, you know, thanks a lot for the chance to be on your podcast because you've got some fascinating people. I was just listening beforehand to the Pleistocene Park. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That'd be great. Wouldn't you love to go in and spend the summer with mammoths on the Thunder? Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. And I look from our listeners, and they, they cut off Russia when the war started. So I had no listeners in Russia. And then I was delighted to see that Russia somehow popped up again because, you know, we can't just tar the whole of Russia with one brush so they can't listen no, to no. any podcasts. No, no, <laughs> so, no. I mean, the, the, the green thing has to, has to carry on globally. You know, it really has to, it has to rise above it. You know, it was saddening to see, you know, China because of a recent visit by American politician. China has decided not to cooperate with America on any of the on any of the climate things, and and that's so short-sighted. You know, we need we need big collaborations. We need all of us to do what we can, but we, we need the big moves. We, we need, need the, the big, we we do we need the big movers. <laughs> Doug, it's been an absolute blast. I enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> and I will, I will see you at one of the shows. We're going to come and find you. Um, no, no, come and do that. And uh, I must come down the barn. Um, you know, you're not that far from my place in letter, Frank. Please do. Come and visit the Borough Nature Sanctuary and we'll show you what we're trying to do here on a small scale. No, no, great, yeah. Okay. Thank you so Thank much. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. News from Borough Nature Sanctuary this week is that our apartment is now available for short stays and can be found on Airbnb in the Kinvara section under the title Relax and Recharge. Decorated in calm colours with natural timber elements, it's the perfect place to take some time to get away from it all. The king-size bed separates into twin beds for flexibility and with a luxurious full-size desk and comfortable desk chair, you can even write that novel. We were delighted to welcome our first guest this week from the States who have a week between weddings and need to work online and relax. With a dedicated mini kitchen, fresh coffee on tap in our cafe and countless options for food in the village, everything is easy and access to the 50 acre site with walks, farm pets and a magical disappearing lake is sure to provide rest and recuperation. Reserve your slot now and get back to nature.